Hi, welcome. I'm glad you're here. Whether you've been with us from the very beginning or maybe this is your first time here, welcome to the family. And during these unprecedented times, Foundation FCM, you guys are drawing closer in fresh new ways. That's right. We are so excited to just see all of our families growing and thriving. From our children connecting midweek and on Sundays with their online teaching opportunities to our student ministry that is having midweek huddles. They're also having their midweek message by Pastor Raquel and having opportunities to connect online through social media. It's wonderful to see all of our students and kids connecting to one another and more importantly, connecting to Christ. Amen. And adults, we are so excited. The mission here at FCM is to be Christ-like disciple makers. And during this season, we're excited to let you know that our discipleship groups are not only continuing to meet thanks to online resources, but they're growing and thriving. And so we're really excited to see how all of our families are able to connect. Now, if you haven't taken time to download our MyFCM app, we wanna invite you to do so today. Through our app, you're able to find ways that not only you can connect, but your entire family can connect. And through our app, you're also able to watch all of Pastor Chris's full teaching series, and more importantly, his current teaching series. Thanks, Melissa. Foundation, FCM, the church is more than a campus or a building. The church is you and I being the very hands and feet of Christ. And I am so proud of you, church. We are being the presence of Christ right in our neighborhoods. We're looking for ways to help one another, to reach out to our neighbor, and to show the love of Christ. Keep up the good work. We love you, FCM. Treasures woven by His love His careful hands they hold us Safe within His promise Of calling and of destiny Come on, let's sing it again Where heaven spun creations His pride and adoration Treasures woven by His How far you care
one voice to our King. That surely your goodness and mercy, it will follow me. It will follow me. Surely your goodness and mercy, it will follow me. Surely your goodness and mercy, it will follow me. Come on, just your voice, church. And there wasn't a day that you weren't by my side. And there wasn't a day that you let me fall. And in all of my life, your love has been true. Come on. All of my life, I worship you. There wasn't a day that you weren't by my side. There wasn't a day that you let me fall. And in all of my life, your love has been true. Come on, and with all of my Worthy baby friend, we can have a 
Hi, and thank you for watching. I am so excited to be here with you today. God has put an awesome, powerful message on my heart, and I can't wait to share it with you. Now, I've been in the middle of a sermon series entitled Anxious for Nothing, and that's for Sunday morning. Midweek, we've been talking about the signs of the times. Today, those two series intersect with this message. This message, I believe, is so powerful, it needs to be part of both series. We're going to talk about the powerful prophecy that point to Jesus Christ's return. We're going to be talking about the return of the king to this earth to establish his kingdom. But first, we're also going to be talking about him rapturing up and taking up all the believers to be with him as the bridegroom comes for his bride. Yes, we're talking about the beautiful imagery that Jesus uses to depict his second coming, and the culmination of an epic love story. Come on, join me. Signs of the times. We, we talked about last week, ID 2020. Now, if you want to know more about that, simply go to Signs of the Times, part two on your MyFCM app. Today is part three, and we're going to talk about that beautiful imagery of Jesus coming back and, and the culmination of this love story that has been told throughout the ages. Jesus is sitting down with his disciples. I want you to picture this with me. He's on the Mount of Olives, and he's overlooking the Kidron Valley, and he's looking at the Temple Mount where the temple is built, and he says to his disciples, he begins to predict that there will be destruction come upon Jerusalem and the temple. And so his disciples ask him, Lord, tell us when and what will be the sign of your second coming. Now, where did they get the idea that they would actually get a sign? I'll tell you where. Jesus, prior to this, had already rebuked some of the religious leaders for not knowing the sign of his first coming. Meaning, I'm here and you have no clue who I am, why I came, and that I'm the fulfillment of all of these prophecies that you study day in and day out. And so he rebukes them for it, he gets on them, and he calls them a wicked and adulterous generation. Now think about this, if you're a disciple, you hear this and you say, well, Lord, what's the sign of your second coming? And this is the stage that's set for Matthew 24 and 25. That's what we're going to be talking about. Now, I know you might be tempted to say, Chris, pastor, dude, we have been hearing about his second coming for years. Every generation talks about him coming, and yet he's not here. Look, I don't want to be a skeptic. I don't want to have a bad attitude, but I just figure it'll happen when it happens. Can I tell you that even that attitude that's pervasive in our culture today was prophesied in God's word? Read with me in Peter, 2 Peter, chapter 3. The apostle of Jesus Christ predicts that very same attitude. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. Now listen to this. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Where is it? I don't see him. For years we've been hearing about it. Our ancestors talked about it. It never does happen. Peter predicts it. Not only that, but Peter goes a step further and says in verse 14, If you believe, 
this is how you should live. He says, you should live, live looking forward. What does that mean? With an anticipation in your heart, verse 14 says. Make every effort to be found spotless. Now, I want you to highlight that word spotless. That's very, very important. Also, blameless and at peace. That's another word you should highlight because Jesus will later use that word peace. What does it mean when you have peace with God? It means that you have been forgiven of your sins and it's through Jesus Christ and accepting his perfect work on the cross as your sacrifice that washes you white as snow. You have peace. Now, if you don't have peace, if you've never understood that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, verse 15 speaks to you. He says, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. This is what Peter is saying. And and if you read further up, you'll, you'll get the full story. I'm just reading a couple of verses here. But this is what Peter is saying. Many of you think that God is slow at keeping his promise because maybe he can't keep it. He has no interest in keeping it. Something else is going on. No, Peter says very, very clearly, the reason God has not sent Jesus back. The Father has not sent the Son back to collect his church is for one reason. He wants everyone to be saved. He wants to give everyone an opportunity to receive him. And that's what this message is all about. Jesus Christ hangs on a cross with his arms wide open and says, I love you this much. But you have the opportunity to either receive that or reject it. And that's what Peter is saying. He's coming back, but he's given everyone an opportunity. So let's talk about him coming back for his bride, for his church. We know that event will take place very, very soon. Now, I'm going to show you from God's word why I believe that. But that event is called the rapture. The rapture. What is the rapture? Well, according to Billy Graham Ministries, the rapture, which is the transformation and catching up of all Christians, dead or alive, to meet Christ in the air. Hmm. Moody Bible Institute defines it this way. Before he establishes his kingdom on earth, Jesus will come for his church. An event commonly referred to as the rapture. At that time, the dead in Christ will be raised and living Christians will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air and to be with him forever. Now that is going to be an awesome event. Can I tell you, you don't want to miss that. This is going to be the biggest event in history aside from Christ's first coming. So consider this with me for a second. The Bible talks about him coming back for his church and they call it the rapture. Now, his disciples are sitting there with Jesus. Jesus begins to talk about these end things and they ask him, when What will be the sign? And he tells them this. In chapter 24, he says, verse 14, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. You know, this prophecy right here has been fulfilled and is being fulfilled in our lifetime. In fact, we can say that Christianity is the largest religion on the face of the earth. And that the gospel has been preached and is being preached right now in every corner. 
Now, verse 15 is a little different. I want to really highlight a couple of things for you. Jesus is going to talk about the holy place and something horrible taking place. He calls it the abomination that causes desolation, and he's referencing Daniel. The holy place is in the temple. But I want to remind you that the temple is about to be destroyed, and Jesus, in fact, tells us this in verse 2 of this same chapter. This is what sparks the entire conversation between him and his disciples when they say, when is this going to happen and what will be the sign of your second coming? Now, you'll see this clear, but the temple is actually going to be destroyed. This is what Jesus was talking about, and he alludes to it also in Luke and other places. This happens during the New Testament church time. That's that first generation of believers, the temple's destroyed. So what temple are we talking about here? The one that's about to be rebuilt in Jerusalem. That's the one we're talking about. And this is what Daniel is referencing. So he says, when you see standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Highlight that word understand. Jesus is saying, I not only think it's possible, I expect my believers to understand To understand what? The season. Maybe not the day or the hour, but the season. And this is very, very important. Now, he highlights one prophet. Of all the prophets, this is the one he mentions by name, and it's Daniel. I think it's awesome that he would highlight Daniel. As a matter of fact, we know that Daniel, as a young man, was taken into exile by Babylon when they conquered his nation, Judah. Now, as a young man, he was there, and all his life he served under foreign leaders. And yet the Bible highlights his faithfulness and his love for God. In fact, God refers to him as his beloved. He's one of two prophets in all of Scripture that God uses that phrase to refer to them, his beloved. John is the second, and we find John the the disciple gets the revelation in the New Testament, and Daniel gets this lion's share of prophecy. In fact, these two men get more prophecy than any other prophets in all of Scripture, and they form the structure by which all of the prophecies attach. Now, this is amazing because because Jesus highlights Daniel. Now, something about the book of Daniel. Now, I'm going to show you the chapters and how they're broken up into two categories, both historical and prophetic. It's also interesting that it's written in two languages, green for Aramaic and white for Hebrew. I find this fascinating because the only reason you would write a book in two different languages is because you had two audiences in mind. You have the Jewish people and everyone else. Now it's interesting because chapter 9 is the chapter that Jesus highlights. But before we go to to chapter 9, which is written in Hebrew, I want to answer the question you might be thinking right now, and you might be saying still, Pastor, I don't care about prophecy. That's so, you know, I get lost. I just don't know. I'd just rather not. What's the purpose in studying prophecy? It will happen when it happens. Well, Daniel tells us that many will be purified and made spotless and refined. I truly believe that, that studying prophecy increases your faith and you desire to be more holy for your king. It changes the way you walk. 
because you live with a heavenly perspective. But not only that, listen to what else it says, but those who are wise will understand. There's that word that Jesus said. Let the reader understand. So Daniel's telling you, it will increase your wisdom and give you understanding. He also goes on to say, and those that have wisdom and understanding will instruct others. Do you realize that's what Peter said? Peter said, God is, is not slow for any other reason that he wants people to be saved. And here Daniel is saying, when you have understanding of prophecy, you get to participate in that epic work of salvation in helping others understand and sharing the good news. That Jesus is coming soon and that you can have a relationship with him. So let's talk about the prophecy that Jesus highlights for just a minute. It's found in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. It's known as the 70 weeks prophecy. Now I want you to catch that. I want you to stay with me on this. It's known as the 70 weeks prophecy. This is what I believe God is trying to do. He wants to engage your mind before he touches your heart. And here, he wants to appeal to your mind as he, as he outlines and unveils how Daniel got the prophecy of when Jesus Christ would be revealed for the first time as Messiah. So this 70 weeks prophecy actually, you'll see it in just a minute, points to the exact day that Jesus is revealed as Messiah and Daniel predicts it by the power of God hundreds of years before. I also believe that he predicts his second coming, and that's why Jesus highlights it for his disciples. Now hang in there with me. The 70 weeks prophecy is known as seven weeks. Daniel uses the word weeks. I don't want you to get uh, mixed up on this. Daniel uses the word weeks the way we use the word decade. A week is a seven-year period, much like decade is a 10-year period. So the 70 weeks is broken up or is found in these, in, these first, in these verses. Verse 24 is the overall general answer from the angel. Verse 25 is the 69 weeks. We'll discuss that in more detail. Verse 26 is an interval or there's a gap between the 69th week and the 70th week starting, which is in verse 27. Now again... I want you to see this. He's talking about 20, excuse me, 70 weeks. 70 weeks. Now those weeks are broken up like this. 7 plus 62 equals 69 weeks and something significant happens. What he's going to say is, Daniel, this is for your holy people. This is for the Jewish people. There will be a decree to rebuild Jerusalem and then Messiah will be revealed, and he will be killed. Then there's a gap, and then it starts up again in that last 70th week. You'll see that that 70th week has, an, has a person who commits the abomination that causes desolation. That person or that individual that's being highlighted in that verse is the Antichrist. We're talking about that 70th week being the seven years of tribulation. Now stay with me and let's read the prophecy. Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgressions, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint 
the most holy place. So for human history to finish, there's going to be 70 weeks. Well, we know that can't be. Well, wait a minute. You have to include the gap, that church age, that grace gap, or the time of the Gentiles. It can be referred to in different ways. That's the time in which we currently live in right now. So 69 weeks have taken place. We're waiting for the 70th week, and we are in the middle in that gap period. What started when Jesus was cut off or put to death? Let's read 25 before we answer that question. Know and understand. There's that word understand. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens for a total of 69 weeks. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. So I'm going to show you a diagram where that command to restore Jerusalem goes out as a decree from Artaxerxes, the Medo-Persian uh, emperor, in March 14th of 445 B.C. This is chronicled in Nehemiah chapter 2. If you take 69 weeks and multiply, and multiply it by 7 to transfer it into years... And then you have to use 360 days because the ancients and Daniel used a lunar calendar. We use 365 days, but they used 360 because each month had us just an even 30 days. Now, when we make that calculation and we start from the time the decree went forward, which is a matter of historical record, it puts us on the exact day that Jesus was revealed in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday as the Messiah, King of Glory. Now that's awesome. That is amazing, guys. I want you to think about that. I want you to consider what happened the day he was coming into Jerusalem and they were, and they were shouting, Hosanna, glory to him who comes in the name of the Lord. I want you to remember that the Pharisees saw the crowd and what they were shouting and they rebuked Jesus. They said, hey, this is blasphemy. They're calling you the king of glory. You need to rebuke your disciples and tell them to pipe down. And Jesus says, I cannot tell them to be quiet for this day was foretold. And if they remain quiet, the very rocks, I believe he said, the mountains will cry out because God's word is powerful and it shall be fulfilled on this day as it was predicted by the prophet Daniel. You say, yes, 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 pastor. I get that, Chris. That happened, watch, that starts this interval. That's the beginning of the interval. Read with me. The people of the ruler who will come, will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. That verse that I just read is the gap. What happens? Jesus is put to death. The Messiah is revealed and killed that very week. The church begins with his resurrection and the and the descending or the sending of the Holy Spirit. 
we know that the ruler of the age or the people of the ruler who will come, that's Antichrist and the Antichrist system, that's, that's the worldly system, will destroy the holy city. They, in fact, did within that first generation of the church. The church has been going. The world has been going. And then we have the 70th week. Read with me. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of that seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And at the temple who is, that's going to be rebuilt, he will set an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Do you realize the word poured out is significant? Because when John talks about the wrath of God and the bold judgments, he talks about the wrath and the bold judgments being poured out in that seven-year period. Yes, but what does that have to do with his second coming? I want to show you the diagram one more time. 69 weeks refers to his first coming. At the end of that church age, he's going to come back prior to the 70th week or the seven years of tribulation. How do we know this? We know this because, because Jesus is telling his disciples the church age will come to an end just like Daniel predicted it would start and it would end with the 70th week commencing or starting. And that's because the church will be raptured into heaven as God's attention turns back to Israel and he draws them back to him in a great soul harvest. This is, this is indicated clearly in the book of Revelations. Remember I told you Daniel and Revelations go hand in hand. Now next week I'm going to explain it all in full detail, but now I want you to grab Daniel and get the beautiful imagery that we're about to go into. But first I want to highlight that Jesus gives you more explanation about this church age we're in. In verse 44 of Luke 19, when he's being revealed as Messiah, he says this, they will dash you to the ground. He's talking about Jerusalem, the temple. The same destruction that took place in the first century of the church. You and the children within your walls, they will not leave one stone on another. He said that in Matthew 24 as well. Because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Not only does he say that, but Paul adds to this by saying, I do not want you to be ignorant. That means I need you to understand this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening which is exactly what the prophets say in the Old Testament, that they would not receive their Messiah. Their hearts would be hardened until when? Until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. Peter is saying the same thing. God is being patient, wanting everyone to accept before he raptures his church. Listen to what else Jesus says in Luke 21. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. This, in fact, happened to the Jewish people. Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles. This, in fact, happened until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, this is where I want to I really have you follow me on this. This grace gap will come to an end 
just before the 70th week commences. The attention will be pointed back to Israel. Next week, I'm going to detail for you prophecy after prophecy after prophecy after prophecy that's taken place within the last 70 years, indicating that the 70th week is about to start. The time of the church and the Gentiles is coming to an end. Does that mean no one's going to be saved? No, that doesn't mean that. People will be saved in the seven years of tribulation but the church is going to be raptured prior to that. And that's what I want you to understand so clearly right now. So you say, and many of you have asked me, but pastor, there's something huge happening. There's IDs, there's talks of of tracking people, there's talks of cryptocurrency and a a one-world currency and a one-world ID, and there's talks of all of these things. It kind of sounds like the revelation in John. Well, listen to Daniel first. Before that happens, there will be an antichrist, there will be a mark of the beast, there will be all of those things, but before that happens, Jesus comes for his church. Now, I want you to understand the wedding language. Because he's engaged your mind, now he wants to touch your heart. Now I want you to think about something with me for a second. Jesus was a Nazarene. That means he was from the region of Galilee, and every one of his disciples was too. Now this is where it all comes together. We've talked about the technical prophecy of Daniel and how Jesus pointed out this clue. But now I want to show you a different clue, one that will touch your heart where the bridegroom begins to use imagery that gives us everything we need to know about him coming back for his bride. And he's telling a group of fishermen, tax collectors, this ragtag bunch, and they're all from Galilee. You know what else I find interesting? That his very first miracle was at a wedding in Galilee, Cana to be specific. There at that wedding, He shows up with all of his disciples and they run the wedding, the host and and those in attendance, they run out of booze. How do you do that? I'll tell you because the wedding in Galilee lasts a week. It's a tremendous celebration. It's like nothing that we have here close to compare it to. A wedding was a big, big deal. And so his, his disciples surely would have grasped the imagery That's why they don't ask, why are you coming back? They know why he's coming back. They ask, when? When will this wedding take place? When will all of this happen? At the end of the church age, before the 70th week takes place. That's why he highlights Daniel. Well, let's talk more about this wedding language. Now, in Galilee, at Cana, he starts his ministry at the behest of his father. Do you know he will come back also at the behest of his father? But first, let's talk about what it means to be betrothed and be betrothed for marriage in Galilee. So the Galilean wedding betrothal, it is beautiful. It's where the bride and, and, and the groom and their families come together to announce to the world their intention to be husband and wife. It happens at the city gate. So they walk through the town on their way to the city gate. What does the city gate represent? It represents uh, something formal. 
it represents witnesses and wanting everyone to know their intention is to be husband and wife and they're willing to be committed truly committed to one another under God's holy covenant. Now, I need you to understand something. This is an intention to be fully married. It's a betrothal. It, it, it has weight, but they won't consummate the marriage yet. So this is what happens. Both families show up at the city gate where the elders are to witness, and they invite anyone who wants to come along to also see what's taking place. There, the 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 groom will gather with his family and the bride will gather with her family. They, they sign a formal agreement known as the Ketuvah Covenant. It's a covenant depicting all that they agree to do and how much they agree to love, care, protect, and provide for each other. After that is signed, then they, then they exchange beautiful, thought-out, thought out, expensive gifts the most expensive going to the bride and her family. But after that is my favorite part. It's the part where, they, where they, they finally seal it with the ceremonial cup of joy. What is that? What do I mean? I mean at this point, the groom is handed a jug of wine. He takes the cup that he has brought with him and he fills it with wine. And then gently, I'm sure nervous and, and completely vulnerable, he hands it to his bride-to-be. And his bride-to-be in this moment, I want you to think about this with me. In this moment, she has all the power and she has complete free will to either accept or reject. Isn't that what we said earlier when Jesus hangs on a cross and he says, will you love me? And it's everyone's opportunity. Peter says, God is moving slow because he wants to give everyone an opportunity to either accept or reject. And so the groom hands over the cup with two hands, gently, with as much care, concern, and sincerity in his eyes. He hands it to his beautiful bride-to-be, and he waits. You know, that moment that might only take a second, but to him seems like an eternity. And she takes the cup and she raises it to her lips and she drinks. He breathes a sigh of relief and then he, he reaches over, takes the cup back and he drinks it. And then he proclaims something like this. We are now bound by the law of Moses to be married. And I will not drink of this cup or the fruit of this vine until we drink together in my father's house. In Luke 22, he says, For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. He uses the same words with his disciples at the Last Supper as he passes them the cup. And then the groom would have, would have turned to his bride and say, I'm going to prepare a place for us to live together. And he would spend a year preparing. But this is where it really gets good and beautiful. He goes to his father's house, and in his father's house, he begins to add on. He begins to add on enough room for him to raise a family, for him to bring his bride back, for them to consummate the marriage, and for him to be able to live life together with her. 
Can you see why in this same Last Supper evening when Jesus gathers his disciples and he passes this cup to to them and he seals their betrothal with with this same ceremonial cup of joy? He says these words to them in John 14, verse 1. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. He's saying, don't be anxious for anything. Why? I don't want your hearts to be troubled. For in my Father's house, there are many mansions. And I go there to prepare a place for you that I may come back and take you to be where I am. Now, the, the groom's responsibility is to go and prepare a place. The bride's responsibility is to prepare her dress and herself to be spotless, to be pure, to be faithful, and eagerly awaiting her groom's return. Can you see what Jesus is saying to his disciples He's saying, just like Daniel predicted when I would come the first time, and just like in Daniel, it says that he would be put to death starting the church age, the age of grace. That's the age we're in now. And that will culminate as things start to turn back to Israel for that 70th week. Next week, I'm going to depict prophecy after prophecy after prophecy indicating that that is in fact happening and that the rapture could take place at any moment. The groom is coming back for his bride. So this is what would take place. The groom would go and prepare a place and when all the preparations were made for not only the place where they would live, but for the celebration that would last a week. He would let his father know the preparations have been made. And his father would look at him and say, well done, son. Now I'll tell you when it's time. Now go with me to to Matthew 24, verse 36. In Matthew 24, verse 36, Jesus literally says, but the day and the hour no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, but only the Father, because it was Galilean tradition that once the preparations were made, the Son would let the Father know. And and it was typically a one-year process. So the bride had a pretty good idea that she needed to be ready because it could be any moment. But But the groom's father would decide. And typically, it would be in the middle of the night because grooms, the dads wanted to make sure that she was ready, that, her son, that his son was ready. And he would come and wake his son up and say, it's time, son. It's time. And his son would quickly make his preparations and they would go out into the street and with a trumpet sound begin to announce to the bride, I'm here. Come out and receive me. Now, this is very, very important. Now, in the Galilean culture, the groom would come with his, with his groomsmen and they would put the bride in a litter in this, in this carrying apparatus. And you know what it's called? It's literally called flying the bride to his home. 
she would be flown. Can I tell you this is the same imagery that God uses in the New Testament to talk about the bride of Christ, the church, being caught up or raptured to him in glory, to meet him, to experience a week-long celebration. While God's attention turns back to Israel during that 70 during that 70th week, that seven years of tribulation with the Antichrist and whatnot going on, listen to me, God's church as a part of his bride will be celebrating a week-long celebration in heaven. Now there's one more little piece of, of information I want to share with you. It's found in Matthew 25. Jesus is still talking to his disciples and he talks about the kingdom of heaven and his second coming uh, like a wedding and a bride and her bridesmaids waiting, waiting and in the middle of the night the groom comes and only five of the ten have the necessary oil to make the trip at night back to the groom's home to, in, to be included and to be part of that beautiful celebration. So what happens with the other five? Listen to me closely. They know. They know and they have head knowledge of the fact that Christ might come and, and that there is, there, there's Christianity and there's all these teachings, but they don't have it in their heart. Why? Because they don't have oil for their lamp. See, the Bible talks about us being the light of the world. The Bible talks about us being sealed with the Holy Spirit. And traditionally, listen to what, what, what the imagery is here. You can know, the Bible says that even the, demons in, even the demons in Satan know, but they're not saved. What does it mean to be saved? It means to put your faith in God and He begins to bring forth light from deep within after you receive His Spirit. The Spirit of God has always been connected with oil. And oil has always been used as the imagery to depict the Spirit of the living God. And so here we're called, church, to understand that our groom comes soon. We're called to connect with this beautiful story of love and to look forward to his second coming with great anticipation, not getting caught up in the darkness of this world or falling asleep because when the groom comes, the Bible says he will come like a thief in the night when no one expects it. Do you realize that's what the father did in the time of Galilee? In that tradition, he would wake up his son and he'd say, now it's time Go get your bride. Come fly her back to your home. Let's start this celebration. But only those that really wanted to celebrate and be a part of it would be included. The rest would be caught asleep, unaware. And so that comment of a thief in the night, that's not meant for the church. The church isn't supposed to be caught unaware. We're, we're eagerly waiting. We're spotless. We're at peace. That's for everyone else. Don't be everyone else. Experience a relationship with Jesus Christ. I invite you to visit the salvation message on your MyFCM app. FCM, anyone listening, let's not be caught unaware. Let's be ready for our bridegroom comes soon.
I love you, Foundation. We hope you enjoyed today's message by Pastor Chris. We invite you to give from your MyFCM app or by going online at www.myfcm.org. Help us share the love of Jesus during this difficult time.